Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. We are looking forward to sharing our guests with you today. Brad Lemley is a science journalist who has written for the Washington Post, Discover Magazine, and dozens of other national publications. He has written or co-written 10 books, mostly on achieving physical and emotional health. He is a passionate advocate for self-directed, nature-based healthcare and believes strongly that robust health is within reach of anyone who possesses the right information. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. It's great to have you here with us today, and it's a very rare thing for me to interview somebody that I have known for more than 60 years, but today my guest fits that category. He is my first cousin, Brad Lemley. So, Brad, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. 60 years is a long time. We're not getting away with anything, I guess. You could get away with it, but not me. (laughs) Not at all. You, you, You have been an interviewer yourself for more than 40 years with a very distinguished career, and both broadcasts and print and online journalism. So thank you for consenting to be the interviewee. I'm happy to do it. I love to be interviewed. It hardly ever happens. So this is wonderful. Well, it's good. You know, we're recording this um, the day after the president announced an extension of 30 more days on the social distancing uh, safety guidelines as we deal with this pandemic of COVID-19. Right. And the reason that I'm delighted to have you here is because one of the many areas that you have researched so exhaustively and in a very unusual way through your own life is how people can cope with situations that create anxiety, how they can deal with fear and doubt. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving us the, the mini bio, you know, through, through your life and then maybe stop at that point in your early 30s when a lot of this came to light. And we'll go sure, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. So uh, I grew up in Oregon, high school in uh, Salem College in Eugene, and have always been a journalist in various capacities. But in uh, a book that I just wrote uh, called Overcoming Anxiety, The Way Out is Through, uh, I tell a personal story that I've actually never told anyone. And what really propelled that book was I had an editor who told me once, It's one thing to have the technical ability to write well, but the thing that really distinguishes a good journalist or a good writer from another is bravery. And this is actually a story I was sort of uh, reluctant to tell, but it turned out to be, I think, very appropriate because um, there's a lot of anxiety in the world today. And the story that I tell is ever since the time I was a kid, I had anxiety problems. I was essentially afraid of almost everything. And I also, however, grew up in a culture, you too, in some sense, uh, kind of a tough guy culture out there in Eastern Oregon. And it wasn't cool to talk about being afraid of anything. And so I spent a lot of my mental energy fighting these endless feelings of fear Uh, I was afraid of public speaking. I was afraid of meeting new people. I was afraid of virtually everything. I had a particular fear, oddly enough, of 
doing something to harm my brain. And I think that came from the fact that the one source of um, positive self-identity I had was that I was a pretty smart guy and a pretty facile writer and did well in school. And so what happened was um, I kept fighting these feelings of fear. I ended up working in Washington, D.C. for, I was at first a television reporter, and then I worked for the Washington Post. And then I ended up moving to Maine. And one of the reasons was I was so fearful in the situations those jobs put me in that I really wanted to carve out a life for myself in which I was sort of by myself all the time, freelancing for various magazines. And that's what I did. So this brings us to the spring of 1993. I was 38 years old. And um, I was home alone most of the day writing for various people. And this fear that I had suffered with finally started to essentially escape its bounds entirely. And um, I began to have what I can only term panic attacks or almost panic seizures, where the fear would become so strong that I would actually collapse sort of screaming. And I had a day, might have been a Monday, when this happened three times, once in the morning, once in the middle of the day, once in the evening, and then along came the next day, happened again in the morning, again in the middle of the day. And one of the things I've learned since then is cortisol, which is the stress hormone, tends to peak at these times for some people. And so as I sat in the hallway, kind of soaked in sweat and thinking, what the heck was that? I thought, well, it's great that my wife isn't going to be home until late, so I can, I'll have another one around five, and I'll get over it. And um, she'll never know. And then, right after I had that thought, I had another thought, which was quite simply one word. The word was no. No, that's not going to happen. And what happened instead was I spontaneously generated what was probably the most important thought I ever had, which is, no, when I have the next one, I'm going to go to the most crowded place I can find in this little town in Maine, which I decided was probably the supermarket. And I'm going to have this screaming panic attack in front of as many people as possible. And you might think, why in the world would I want something like that to happen? But the reason was really very simple. I knew if I didn't do that, I would never leave home again. I would be a classic agoraphobic. And I had a seven-year-old son. I had a wife. I had responsibilities. And I had a life that I needed to live. And so I got into my car. And I went to this store and I stood in the most crowded place I could find. And it was about 3.45 and this was supposed to happen at about four o'clock. And I said to my fear, which I had come to regard by that point as a kind of a sub-personality, I said, come on, come on. I wanna feel the worst fear I've ever had. Let's put on a show for everybody where I scream and yell, and this is a small town, probably people would know who I was, and for the rest of my life, I'm ready to be the crazy guy who had a screaming attack in the middle of the store. And I kept making this gesture like a, a prize fighter does to an opponent. Come on, give it your worst. And it just didn't happen. Um, I, I urged it to, I sort of begged it to, and all that happened was instead a sort of odd fluttery feeling in my chest and a kind of almost euphoria. And what was really odd was I realized that 
I had been disowning this part of myself that was a real and legitimate part of myself that needed to be listened to and taken seriously. And I suddenly understood that that was not the way to go. I needed to, instead of spending my life shutting down that emotional conduit, I needed to open it as wide as it could go and urge it, ironically enough, to be stronger. And it it doesn't surprise me, it never occurred to me. Who thinks when they're scared, I'm going to try to be more scared? But and, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. I never had another panic attack. In fact, I don't even get scared anymore. I'm not even scared talking to my CEO cousin, which is quite something. Uh, I, don't, I don't get frightened. And I had a, I've had a really interesting and, and I think extremely fortunate life propelled by the fact that nothing scares me. So I work for the Washington Post. Went all over the world. I worked for Discover Magazine as a senior editor. Went all over the world interviewing the world's leading scientists. I hung out with Elon Musk and we talked about SpaceX. All these things that would have terrified me, couldn't think twice about. And the reason was when I would feel even a little bit frightened, instead of saying, I mustn't feel this, go away, sub-personality known as fear, I did just the opposite. Supermarket act. Come on. Come on. Let's see what you can do. And it, it can never respond. So in subsequent years, I did a little bit of digging into what had happened to me. And I came to realize, well, we'll get into that in a minute. I don't know if you have any questions. I'm going on and on here. Well, no, this is so fascinating. Um, you speak about how you had been disowning this part of yourself, this aspect yeah. of your personality for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, it... it it's a funny thing. It was very important to me not to show fear. In fact, as I say in the book, my mother's nickname for me was Mr. Spock, the emotionless alien from Star Trek. And I really kind of like that. In retrospect, maybe that wasn't a good nickname for me to try to live up to. But in any case, one of the things that I began to discover, because I'm a science writer, um, you know, writing for Discover, um, I spent a lot of time getting to the bottom of a lot of different scientific disciplines and ended up with a great respect for the scientific method as it's applied across disciplines. And so I started digging into the psychology of this. And one of the things I very quickly discovered was that Jung had talked about the shadow, the disowned parts of ourselves, and not until a person makes the effort to integrate those disowned parts, can you really call yourself a whole person? And it's so true. I was about half a person until I was 38, and I feel like I've been a whole person since then. But the other thing that was really striking to me was Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning and is a real hero of mine. And as a practicing uh, clinical psychologist, he came up with this concept that he called paradoxical intent, and that was exactly what I had discovered sort of spontaneously and in extremis. And that was the way to own these feelings that you tend to push away and resist and consequently only make them stronger is to say to them just what I had spontaneously done. Come on. I want to hear from you. You're a real legitimate part of me. I'm not afraid of you. In fact, I'm welcome. I welcome you to, to come into my life and give me the energy and the insight that you have to give. And Viktor Frankl has all this stuff about he treated a man who was a surgeon and afraid of trembling hands. He said, 
try to make them tremble harder. And he said to a person who was extremely sad, try to be even sadder. And he said to a person who was terrified of crowds, try to be so terrified that you collapse from fear. And that would kind of hit close to home. I had basically done more or less the same thing. So this whole idea of, you know, there's a really huge point at the bottom of all of this. And that is that no part of being human is to be despised or feared or pushed away. Um, Nietzsche has this concept of amor fati, love of one's fate. And you really have to sort of grab on to the totality of human life. And as long as you say this part is legitimate and this part is illegitimate, this part I'll keep, this part I'll discard, um, you're really doing yourself and to a large extent, the world, a great disservice. I mean, I've not only had a happier life for myself, but I've devoted my life um, to service. And you can't do much service when you're basically just trying to shore up your own mental health all the time. And um, the fact that I was able to get out of my own way, in a sense, put this behind me. And the other thing I will say is it works for emotions of all kinds. If you are overcome with grief, you can challenge yourself to be sadder, to be the most miserable human who's ever existed on the planet. And if you are, um, I mean, basically uh, any emotion, any, you need to open your conduit. I think men in particular need to work on this fairly hard. But my conduit's open all the time. And uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Now, you know, you don't necessarily have to stumble into it like I did. You know, a, a good therapist, uh, I find a lot of therapists are familiar with the concept of paradoxical intent, and they can lead you through a process. Uh, I happen to do it cowboy style, which is, I guess, how I've done most things, but it doesn't have to be that way. A, a, a therapist could also help you through this situation. So. Mm -hmm. so getting a little bit more specific, what if somebody has a tendency to just be really angry, you know, and they've worked really hard to control that anger because it could be dangerous, could be harmful. Uh, anger is one, anger is a real one. And, and I have had that, in fact, I tell the, the story in the book, I was really big on stopping down my anger, never showing any anger at all. That's absolutely ridiculous. To be human is to be angry. All human beings get angry. And the story that I told in the book, and this is really true, I was in Los Angeles and somebody thought it would be a good idea to smash in the back window of my vehicle and take mine and my wife's computer and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, there was not only the value of the computer, but the stuff that was on it. And I actually had a conscious moment right there in front of my smashed car where I went nuts, very uncharacteristic for Mr. Spock. But I pounded on the roof and I screamed obscenities and I was I just went berserk. But it was conscious. I chose to do that. And in about two minutes, I was over it. And I just had this sort of residuum of useful energy that I could use to call the cops and, and do other things. And it was a result of having this emotional conduit sort of habitually open when it had, had been closed. Had that happened to me in 1987. I would have prided myself on looking extremely cool and calm and collected about it. And it probably would have 
sent me into an emotional tailspin of various kinds for, for days. So, you know, there's a, there's a tendency, a lot of people, if you're constituted in a certain way and you also are in a certain culture, you may be actually quite an emotional person, but just stomping on it all the time. And that's not good. Emotions matter. Emotions are real. Emotions are valuable. And most of the good things in the world have happened because people let their emotions propel them. But if you shut one down, you tend to shut them all down. If you open one up, open them all up. And I think being open and available to your emotional life is one of the most important things that a human being can do. I think if there is a task set before us in each life, that was probably the task that was set before me in this one. Hmm. So you used to quote your, your dad that whatever we resist persists. Mm -hmm. You must have even more insights into that now. Can you expand on that in this notion? Well, exactly. And, and in fact, one of the things that both Jung and Freud and my dad <laughs> would all agree with is that um, one of the best ways to see your emotional life is in uh, the realm of a sort of a sub-personality, which is really interesting. You know, a personality is a complex of thoughts, behaviors, and motivations. And because my fear was with me for so long and I resisted it so vigorously, I have absolutely no problem regarding it as a sub-personality. It was a part of me that could be construed as an entire fearful person that lived with me. And every time I resisted it and said it wasn't real and it had no validity, it got bigger and stronger, not unlike when you say the same thing to a person. I don't recognize you. I don't see you. You have no validity. People don't like that. They like to have recognition and validity, and they will come back ever more insistently until it's granted to them. You know, Marvin Minsky talked about the society of minds. You know, we are, in a real sense, aggregations of people. And you need to sort of respect all of the subpersonalities that you are. And it's, you know, there, Freud also used the term, excuse me, not Freud, Jung, the integrated person. And I think that's an important task in life is to be an integrated person, to take all of the disowned and unwanted and rejected and un undervalued parts of yourself, bring them in, put them on the team, and uh, you become a whole and integrated person. And, and a person who is in possession of their shadow you can actually tell by looking at them. It's sort of a funny thing. I've become kind of an aficionado of this. And these are the kinds of people who will do things like if you ask them to do something and they are determined not to do it, they'll say no. And that no has a different character than the no you will hear from a lot of people, which is a kind of a dithering, talk me out of it. I hope I haven't made you mad sort of a no. The know that comes from a person who has integrated the shadow part of themselves is a, my friend, you're going to have to kill me because that's the, because uh, I'm not going to do it. There's no way that's going to happen. You, you, you become in a sense formidable and it's the formidable people in the world who make things happen. So it's a good, it's a good thing to become if you can. 
So this integrated personality will let us strengthen our strengths and actually channel some of the things that are perceived as weaknesses by no longer referring them as that and just say, that's an ingredient. That's a part of me. That's exactly right. And, you know, um, it's interesting because uh, the psychologist Jordan Peterson is, is having a moment and he talks quite a lot about integration of the shadow. And one of the things that he says, which I think is really true, is many people confuse uh, virtue with harmlessness. They think they're virtuous, but what they really are is harmless. And that's an entirely different thing. Virtuous people, people who really possess virtue, are far from harmless. Uh, you can't push them around and they uh, can push back and cause tremendous upheaval. And they can do harm, but they tend to do harm in a way that harm needs to be done. They harm institutions that need to be taken apart. And so uh, it's a really, really important thing. You know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, the resolute character that you can develop if you go through this um, this process of, of integrating your disowned selves. I, I've had a lot of feelings lately, uh, and I've been asked to do some, some things in the course of my life that I thought were unethical, and I simply will not do them under, under no circumstances. There's simply nothing that can make me do it. And there's a kind of a peace that comes from feeling that. And I think a lot of it has to do with that initial integrative process that I went through back in 1993. So. Mm, mm. I guess it's, uh, we can't really say that something is a value unless we actually live that. We can talk about it, but it's just theoretical unless we're living it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think um, there are cultures that have ceremonies around uh, becoming an adult that in my world didn't really exist. And in some ways that event that happened to me in 1993 was a kind of an organic forcing of adulthood. Um, I don't think I was grown up until that happened. I felt very grown up since then. And it's a kind of a funny thing because I see culturally now there is a lot of um, affection for, oh, I don't want to start adulting. And uh, there's, a, there's discussion of the infantilization of, of a lot of people these days as, as life has become sort of soft, but that's not good. And it's really important that people go through difficulty and um, properly incorporate it. You know, and at this moment we've got this um, coronavirus pandemic. That's the reason that I've made the, I've made the book free and anybody can actually download it from bradlemley.com. Um, and uh I really feel like this is almost sort of a cultural forcing moment. A lot of the relatively trivial things that were distracting a lot of people a year ago have dropped away. It's a clarifying moment around this. And of course, we I'm not saying it's good that it happened. What I am saying is because it has happened, we would be foolish not to learn something from it about ourselves and about how to operate. And many people are now becoming acquainted with fears that they suppressed. And so the reason that I'm putting this book out there is because I want people to um, understand that the fear that they're feeling uh, is there to help. It's, it's an energy that you need to embrace. It's part of being a human being. And um, whether you do it 
strangely and spontaneously and cowboy style like I did, or you do it with the help of a therapist or a, a clergy person or a loved one, no matter how you do it, it's a good idea to do it. It's a good idea to, to take the steps necessary to become an integrated person. And this pandemic might provide that opportunity for a lot of people. And if so, they should take it. Um, I think the world is going to change in interesting ways. And I think we're going to need some more resolute people, not just now, but for a few years to come in the wake of the changes that this pandemic is engendering. We're probably looking at a pretty big economic dislocation. And um, I was just reading that during the depression, uh, crime actually went down. People became, in a sense, more virtuous. I would like to see that happen now as well. And um, I think I think it's possible if people get the right lessons and incorporate the the right teachings from this experience. Mm -hmm. Which means using that uniquely human gift, and that's the ability to put things in perspective. Right. right. And exactly. realizing there will be something else. You know, everybody's talking these days about wondering when things will get back to normal. The more I've been observing and thinking and praying, I hope we go forward to better, not back to normal. Because there I agree. Be I mean, I think I think many, many people at the moment this arrived, and I don't know if it's appropriate to be sort of teleological about it, but it does seem extremely, I don't know, it seems like it's, there's some sort of reasoning behind it. You know, if you ask people, uh, there, there's a, we all have one problem now. And so a lot of the dross and the nonsense drops away. It's a clarifying moment. And I see so many examples of that and so many changes. I was actually writing an essay on this subject that we're going to be confronted with going forward. And I hope that um, we have the courage to make them. I was just reading 7 million people a year have been dying from air pollution. Well, regardless of what the death toll from coronavirus is, perhaps we'll decide that some of the air pollution abatement that happened as a result of shutting down industry needs to continue so that we don't have that death toll going every year from now on. Or things like, I don't know, so many things, the importance of maintaining metabolic health, which is a real passion of mine. Um, it appears that uh, metabolic health is an important determiner of immune health, and that's one of the things that we'll need going forward. So there are lessons to be incorporated, but it's going to take strong and resolute people to incorporate them. And uh, I think if people can take the fear that they're feeling now, embrace it, understand it, um, get some use from the energy of it, they'll become the sort of people who will um, appropriately use the opportunity that's in front of us to make the world better. Mm. That's what we are all praying for which is yeah. so powerful. You, you have an, another quotation. I think you even had it on a t-shirt or something that whatever doesn't kill me stresses, <laughs> stresses my parameters. Oh. Tell, tell me this one. Well, Nietzsche said, uh, yeah, Nietzsche said, what does not kill me makes me stronger. And being a science geek, I changed it to what stresses me with inappropriate parameters resolves as more robust homeostasis. <laughs> so but they mean they mean the same thing and that is that human beings are in a real sense built for the struggle um the the sort of ease and prosperity that has characterized particularly western life and particularly american life is a real anomaly in human history i mean uh, deprivation and cruelty and challenge and and everything has really sort of been our lot um but the struggle has now 
come to us in a large sense. And I think it's important for us to understand there are things to be gained from that situation because we are in a real sense built for it. Um, and the thing about that, uh, that t-shirt, that's discussing a concept called hormesis, which is a really interesting thing to dig into. And hormesis is the idea that if you have stresses within a particular parameter, not too little, not too much, uh, you up-level your strength. The most obvious one is exercise. Um, when you leave the gym, you're actually weaker. You've got little micro lesions and injuries in your endothelium, in your arteries. But over the next two or three days, you get stronger because your body is saying this person's in a stressful environment. They need to be stronger to deal with it. Well, hormesis also has a psychological aspect. When people lead stress-free lives, they become extraordinarily psychologically delicate. And that's not good. Being psychologically delicate and fragile is not a good way to go through life. And so uh, it would be uh, something devoutly to be wished if this situation um, or a psychological stressor that people incorporated and used to make themselves stronger for the inevitable stresses that are to come. So let's hope that happens. Wow, that is such a key insight, Brad. It's like the whole notion of you've got to have emotional strength developed before you need the emotional strength. And this can help us all get there in a better way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is. it's, it's really, I mean, this situation, uh, it's extraordinary, but it's also amazing how I see people rising to it. You know, it's, uh, I was just seeing people, these people in emergency rooms who, you know, put their lives on the line or, you know, a renewed appreciation for the guy who stocks the shelves in the grocery store. What an extraordinary thing. I doubt that will fade. And yet nobody thought twice about that guy four months ago. So there's an opportunity to recalibrate. And like I say, make a moment of clarity out of this. But I think the important thing to do is to keep letting it in. Let the information in let your own emotions in and you like the the poem at the end of the the um book uh there's a zen phrase um it's invite your thoughts in just don't serve them tea and they'll leave through the back doors essentially what it says and this is an important thing to understand about thoughts thoughts come and go and the only time they don't go is if you don't let them come and so um if you allow yourself to entertain the totality of what you feel as a human being, um, ironically, it's, it's the way not to feel it all the time. And you uh, wind up a stronger person for having done that. Wow. So we know that a lot of our listeners are dealing with, with anxiety, so nothing could sure. be more timely than this approach that you're sharing with, with people right now. Um, well, it's, you know, the book is a, it's an easy read. It's, it takes 15 minutes to read it. It's, it's, it's a bit of a jump to call it a book. The first half is just basically my experience sort of stumbling through in extremis on this solution, but then putting together various people who are smarter than me and maybe not you, but smarter than me who understand exactly what happened and provide insight into it. And so I've been getting some really nice feedback. Um, I, I put the link up on Twitter and I've got a decent Twitter following 
Thanks. Really nice feedback about how it's applicable to the situation in which we all find ourselves now. So that's that's satisfying. Well, I can share that I woke up about uh, 10 days ago, just couldn't go back to sleep. And, and most people that know me will realize I can sleep through a major earthquake without any real issue. And I couldn't go back to sleep. I, I The thoughts uh, business-wise, family-wise, health-wise, societal-wise, uh, just overwhelm me. And although I had heard you speak about this and I had read your book, I reread your book with this different light, this different perspective. And it was, it was amazing. Um, my wife came out that morning and uh, I had a big smile on my face and she looked at me like, how can you have a smile on your face at a time like this? And I, and, and the look I gave her was because I have a greater appreciation and understanding of myself in this process. And I'm going to have these thoughts. I'm just going to let them go out the door. I'm not going to invite them to stay for tea and then we'll, and we'll move forward. So uh, I've shared that book since with other people who have had very similar reaction. And again, everybody, this is not a profit making venture here. Brad is a, is given this away. It takes about 30 minutes to read. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's uh, it's totally, truly wonderful. Well, I'm really pleased that, that you had that reaction, Dan. It means a lot to me. You're you're a wonderful person, and it's, a, it's always been a joy to be your cousin for sixty plus years. And I hope that <laughs> continues a long time. And I'm I'm really really pleased to hear it's helped you so much. Well, it certainly has. So, on behalf of all of our listeners, Brad Lemley, thank you so much for being on the Action Catalyst. Everybody, bradlemley.com is where you can get a free download, and we can work our way through this together. Thank, thank you, Dan. you so much. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.